Buying a company is no easy feat. There are a lot of steps to consider and a lot of places where things can go wrong. Think about it. Buying a company isn't as easy as you think. It's not like Shark Tank. There isn't a slew of sellers waiting to walk down a long hallway, pitch their companies, and hoping to get your money. But these transactions are a lot more tricky, and not all buyers are sharks. Business ownership is, I think it's most people's dreams. I mean, you know, everybody works for a company, everybody has a boss, everybody is told what to do, when to do it, when to show up. A lot is expected of them. If a company takes off, they don't usually share in that, that gain. And so, you know, everybody has that dream of owning a company, I think. And when a buyer steps into this arena, they're going to be hesitant, as they should, as any smart buyer would be. I'm your host, Randall Silvey, and this is The Deal Closers Podcast. On today's episode, we talk about the process of buying a company. More specifically, we talk about what makes a good buyer. Jason and Ron from WebsiteClosers.com have seen their fair share of buyers in their careers. Buyers are a fickle little bunch because you know the statistics on them aren't very good in their favor. The vast majority of them want to buy a company but never will. When I think that statistic is as close as 80%. They're always looking for businesses. They've always thought about it. You know, they'll look here and there and they just always kind of find a problem with the business. And the problem with that is that there's a problem with all businesses. I mean, no businesses run perfectly. There's, you know, all kinds of things that you can look at with respect to a company. And if you're not kind of looking at the the bigger picture, the scale factor or how it might synergistically work with what, you know, you know, or how you might be able to grow it, then you're not really thinking like an entrepreneur. And, you know, it's not easy to be an entrepreneur. I mean, it's a pretty difficult thing, actually. <laughs> And that's why the vast majority of them fail in the first five years. And so when you look at a buyer, you know, our job as brokers uh, is to be very tedious with them, to make sure that they have the financial wherewithal, to make sure they're being honest about, you know, what their finances are, and to make sure that they're going to be a good fit, you know, for this particular business. Part of making sure they're a good fit is being a resource to buyers throughout the entire buying process. Part of this process is making sure you understand how the seller wants this to look after closing. Do they want to just transition or do they want to remain with it? Do they want to roll some equity and continue to be an owner in the company or do they just want out? And then you have to go and go through all of your buyers as you're vetting them for this process and okay, look, what kind of a seller do you need? And you basically marry them together uh, as best you can and trying to filter through anything that might not necessarily be truthful. And that, unfortunately, is a very big problem with a lot of these folks is they're just not honest with you and they get themselves into this process and it always gets figured out. You know, you're not going to be able to lie your way through the process, but so many of them think that they can. But we've gotten better about it, you know, finding people that, you know, they're, we, we call them kind of tire kickers and, you know, they're constantly kicking tires, constantly looking at businesses. Shoot, we've got people that have probably looked at every business we've ever listed. You know, that's probably close to 2,000 companies we've listed and they've looked at them all. <laughs> and you know, it means that they've gone through the process of signing NDAs and they've looked at, you know, every single confidential memorandum and just found something wrong with every one of them. Never bought one. This doesn't come as a surprise though. The world of e-commerce and the virtual industry as a whole has just scratched the surface. 
Most entrepreneurs, especially those interested in tech, want a piece of it. It's a brave new world in e-commerce particularly. You know, this is something that's only been really taking off over the last maybe five, six, seven years in a big way. So everybody sees the future on it, but there aren't that many people that are experienced in it yet. And there are a lot of moving parts. So we have a lot of people who come to us and they do have a lot, a lot of energy, a lot of excitement, but a lot of fear. And we as brokers can take somebody who, you know, has that vision and we can make them a good buyer. And a lot of it is up to us to do that. As an example, you know, a lot of these people, you know, they're executives for other companies, they're making a good living, but they've never bought a company. They want to be their own boss. They have the vision. They want to be an entrepreneur. They have the dream. And so they want to move forward. And what we do as brokers is we'll take them through every step of the process, the financing, you know, what they can expect from the banks, you know, what the caveats are. As an example, you know, most of these deals under 5 million are done through SBA loans. Well, in an SBA loan, they will lean your house if you have more than 20% equity. And so, you know, if you're not a good broker, you haven't given the buyer the information he needs to make a good decision. And so what will happen is, you know, in a case like that, if you haven't done your job, they'll get to the three quarter mark of the process, maybe five, six weeks along when they're finding out they do have to do that. They're suddenly feeling like I never knew that and I don't want to do it. And so that buyer walks away. We've made them a good buyer by explaining every inch from beginning to end. You know what the due diligence is going to be like. We can give them referrals to people who are highly skilled at this and can help them through the process. So when they're coming in, they really don't know what to ask for. If they go to their accountant, their accountant is really not much more skilled than they are. They certainly have the ability to read a PL and maybe look at the tax return, but that's where their skill set is going to end. And so, you know, we can help them through that process as well. Then you go to the legal phase and, you know, they have to kind of understand what's going to happen during that period. We'll fill them in on what the documents are, which ones they'll be signing, which ones give them protection. You go to the transition, as Jason was explaining a little bit ago, we've got to take them on that tour. You know, okay, this is what's going to happen on the first week. And I, I don't think anyone's more experienced than Jason in giving that particular, you know, speech to him because he's done this so many times, he knows exactly what is going to happen afterwards. And, you know, the, there's always going to be trials and tribulations, and we all learn from every time we do something. And they're about to go through transition. And what they have to understand is how much time is going to be spent on it, where they're going to need to focus. You know, we can actually have a transition schedule laid out in writing. And every step of the way, that's giving them comfort to move forward. So that's where, you know, you take a buyer. And we, as brokers, can make those buyers good. What are important things that potential buyers should keep in mind when buying a tech company that maybe buyers of other companies don't need to worry about? Yeah, there's a big difference. You know, if you're buying a restaurant versus buying an e-commerce company, you know, it's or you're buying maybe a retail storefront versus an e-commerce company. It's a better apples to apples analysis. There are a lot of differences between the two. You know, with a retail establishment, it's all about, you know, location in a particular area and foot traffic and worrying about construction and also worrying about the fact that nobody goes to retail stores anymore. But besides that fact, you know, you've got a completely different beast in, in an e-commerce company, um, which can look a lot of different ways. But, you know, if, if as an example, it's an Amazon FBA company, you're not holding inventory. It's being held by Amazon or a 3PL. And you're basically monitoring listings 
online and making sure those listings are going the way they should go. You're monitoring reviews and making sure that's being done right. You're focused on growth and how you're going to get you know more SKUs into the pipeline. You're finding vendors and those kinds of things. And you're not really doing the checkout process versus, you know, a retail establishment. There's somebody sitting behind a cash register that you're managing to kind of go through that. And so it's a whole different mindset of, of working. A lot of these guys work from home unless it's a large company and, you know, they have employees. A lot of these folks work from home much different than that, you know, which is also, of course, if you bought a restaurant, that would be completely different. You know, you'd be looking for different things. And, and also... These companies, these digital companies, tend to be based on cash flow. You know, the, the, almost the whole valuation of them is cash flow. And then once you get past cash flow, you start looking at their attributes. You know, do they have reoccurring revenue? Are they the type of company that can be scaled not just in its own vertical but in adjacent verticals? Is it a brand? Is it not a brand? Is it someone else's brand? Is it international? Does it have scale ability internationally? So you kind of look at all those things when you compare that to your traditional brick and mortar company, you know, scale is very rarely an opportunity in those kinds of companies. That's why this sector is so exciting for investors because they know there's so many different ways that you can scale them if you know what you're doing. But in a brick and mortar, you know, maybe you can open another location, but you're somewhat limited. You know, if somebody's been in business on a corner of a street for 10 years, they kind of most likely squeezed everything they could out of it. And now people are not going into stores as often. So that makes it even more difficult. Whereas with online, that continues to grow every single day. It just continues to grow. And there's so many ways, you know, if you own a brand online, there's so many ways you can scale it, whether it's on your own website, through social media, through using influencers to, to push your products for you, to selling them on Amazon and knowing how to do well there, to using affiliates to push products on other websites, to using other marketplaces like Walmart, to getting on retail stores at big box places and into going international, which is a whole other option for people. Getting into distribution, creating a whole a wholesale section of your brand. And so I think that's why people are so excited about these. It, it is a completely different analysis than what you might have when you're looking at a brick and mortar place. They're pros. They know what they're doing because they've done it so many times before. They keep mentioning guiding a buyer through the process. So what does this process look like? How do they guide a potential buyer from the moment they spot a listing? If you're buying a company, and we've bought many, you know, so I can just kind of tell you from start to finish where people are looking, you know, how they're finding them, and what that process looks like from start to finish. So most of these buyers for a sub $5 million company are, you know, probably working somewhere at the moment, and they've thought to themselves, I'm kind of sick of working for other people. I want to work for myself, but... You know, I don't necessarily want to start something from scratch. I don't have any experience doing that. And it's probably better that I not only buy a company that's doing that, but also learn from the, the person who started it on how they did it. And, and so, you know, I know that's how I started out, even though I've created quite a few companies as well. My foray as I was practicing as a lawyer was to buy an operating website and I learned a lot from, from doing so. Thinking back to the way it was for me, and you start scavenging through these websites that have listings on them. You start you know, attaching your email address to the newsletters of businesses that are going out. And at Website Closers, of course, we list one almost every day. We have a lot of clients and a lot of different you know, interest levels. So you know, if you're a buyer, you, you, you try to make sure that you're seeing the deals that are come out. And then you know, when you see something that you think is going to match what it is you think you'd want to work on, you email the, the broker 
or call the brokerage and say, look, I'm interested in this. What are next steps? And, and inevitably, the next step is going to be that you need to sign a non-disclosure agreement or confidentiality agreement. And that means that you know the information that you're about to receive on that business is confidential and cannot be used against them in any way. You can't go out and start your own company then and you know compete against them use the data that you receive from them to do so. Um, you can't contact or solicit, you know, the people that are working for the company and, and, and those kinds of things. And once you've signed that, then you receive a package. And a lot of times the package includes financial information at a high level. It'll be informational. It'll either be like an executive summary or a full confidential memorandum. And just to give you a little bit of a taste for, you know, the company, you're going to get the company name. You're probably going to get the URL, if it's an Amazon company, you'll get the storefronts, you'll know what products are being sold, how they're ranking, you know, you'll get a lot of information right then and there that can tell you, okay, this is something I'm interested in or not interested in. From that point forward, then you uh, you contact the the broker and you say, hey, I, you know, I'd like to you know learn a little bit more about this. And depending on the process, the broker might want to talk to you first and get a little more information about you and make sure that you know you're a good fit for all the reasons we talked about before. But you know, a fit includes you can handle the economics of the deal. If we're going to the bank, you've got a good credit report. You've not gone bad on an SBA deal before. You haven't been bankrupt. You know all the things that you know are going to sort of decline you as a as a buyer at the bank. We want to make sure we get that stuff out of the way up front. And then on the strategic side, you know the bank's not going to underwrite a deal, a sizable deal for a buyer unless they have some strategic fit. Now let's say that it's a software company that you're buying and you don't have any software experience, but you know maybe you worked for a tech company. And, you know, you were in sales for that tech company. Well, there's definitely some skills that you have that may not be exact, but adjacent to it. And, you know, that will certainly help you, you know, be successful out there. Then also as a buyer, you have to understand your financial position. You know, if you have $300,000 to your name and you want to buy a company, you have to consider, you know, how much float you're going to have over the down payment you're going to put in. And let's say that you're doing an SBA deal Let's say the deal is a $2 million transaction. Well, 25% of that transaction has to come in from the buyer and the seller. And usually that's 10 to 15% on either one of the two sides. So let's say that you're, you know, you're doing a $2 million deal and you're putting 15% in. So that's $300,000. So if you've only got $300,000 and that's what you need as a down payment, the question then becomes, well, where's your float? You know, what, what are you going to do if something goes wrong? And the answer might be, well, $2 million deal is probably too much for you. The answer might be, we got to go back to the, the seller and see if they'll allow only 10% to come in and they'll carry 15% instead of vice versa. Do you have a 401k? And do you have maybe some equity in a home that you could do a HELOC and get some money out that way? Can you get money from family and friends? And there's a lot of different things you can look at to potentially have that float, but you know you can't spend all of your money that you have in the bank. I mean, that's kind of a common sense thing, but you know you'd be surprised at what we see. You cannot spend everything, and you know there's no general rule there. But it's you know if you're going to put three hundred thousand dollars into a company, you better have five or six hundred thousand dollars at least, you know, in the bank. So you've got buffer because. You know, one of the things that some buyers don't consider is that, you know, we're selling these companies off of an accrual-based platform, but, you know, there's cash flow. 
And if it's an e-commerce company's example, you're going to get a working capital level with the company, the inventory, but you've still got to deal with debt service and SG&A and everything else that comes along with it throughout that process. And so you need to make sure you're putting yourself in a position to be successful and that if something goes wrong, you've got backup money that you can go to until things turn around again. And that can be in the short term or the long term, but you can't just spend everything. So we work with them to find the deal size that makes the most sense to them. And, and a person that's got $300,000, they probably should be buying a company around a million, you know, something like that. It's going to be a little bit more comfortable for them. They're still going to have, you know, say three to $400,000 in cash flow in that company. And they, you know, after debt service should still be able to live a life like they were prior to, you know, buying that company. If you're thinking as a buyer, that's an exercise you should be doing, you know, before you even click on the first deal you're looking at is what can I really afford and, and do that kind of exercise. You know, if I'm putting, let's say that you're, you're, you're getting lucky and you're putting 10% down on a deal, you know, and you've got $300,000, then you know that you probably shouldn't be doing something more than maybe $1.5, $1 million, somewhere in there, just by looking at the numbers. And if you've got backup, say, you know, 401k or a HELOC or those kinds of things, consider whether or not you should pull some money out of those for the process and keep your cash in the cash account so that you continue to have what you need to have. So once you've gone through that exercise and you've kind of, you know, figured out on your own what you can buy, you know, then it's time to start getting vetted. And once you find a business that you like and you have spoken to the seller and you're excited about it, you know, that next step with the lending part is where the broker comes in play. And, and it's really important that you sort of lean on a broker and connect with the right people and, and don't connect with someone on your own that's never closed a deal like that before, because these are very particular deals with a very particular underwriter. Inside the bank, there are teams of people, underwriters, that actually, you know, approve these loans. And not all of them have the kinds of experience you need to be able to understand all of these deals. And so if it's a tech company, you know, and this underwriter only focuses on restaurants, they're lost. And so we've gone to the wrong people. And so you want to make sure you're going to the right people that understand that particular kind of business and have approved those businesses in the past. That's where the broker comes into play. And so then you need to get sort of vetted, quote unquote, with the bank, so you're vetted with us, and then you go to the bank, and you're going to fill out documentation to you know, give them all of your you know, financial information and those kinds of things to get pre-approved for a certain amount of money. And we can work with you as a buyer to do that as well. So once you've been pre-approved and you found the deal that you want, then it's time to put in an offer. And usually that looks like a letter of intent. And what that letter of intent basically is doing is saying, look, if we were to close this deal and sign a purchase agreement to do so, this is what the deal structure would look like. You know, this is what I would pay. This is how I would structure that pay. This is how long I need to get this deal done. I'm going to do due diligence for a certain period of time, just sort of high level stuff. And, and we supply templates to our, you know, to our buyers that they can use, you know, to put these offers in. And then once the offer goes over to the seller, there could be a back and forth. You know, we negotiate back and forth. And we'll work with both parties to make sure we get to a point where, you know, we're successful. And then ultimately... You sign the LOI, and we go into what's called no shop, and and that means that you know the brokerage will stop taking this to other buyers. It will remain off the market for that period of time, and that gives the buyer and the seller time to work through diligence. It also gives the buyer time to work through the the bank process, 
you know, to make sure that they're going to get a commitment letter from them to get this finalized. And then, of course, we proceed to closing. And at closing, a buyer needs to be prepared at that time to spend a lot of time with the seller learning the business. And one thing that I can tell you as a buyer of a company, when you do buy a company for the first time, don't change things. You know, that's the one thing when we see any issues at all out there with post-closing, it's almost always a buyer coming in and wanting to change things. They think they've got a better way of doing it. They see something they see as an opportunity right away and they just want to change it quickly because they can make a little bit more money. Horrible idea. You want to keep things status quo, keep the employee status quo, keep it in the same location if you can. Don't change any of the advertising. Try to keep everything low key and just sit back and listen and learn. Be educated by the, the seller who's built this great company that you were excited to buy. Get excited about it and then you know take a few months and then put a plan together where you'll slowly maybe integrate some of your ideas you know, to change it over time. So that's kind of the whole stream for a buyer's perspective. This process sets buyers up for success. But as Ron mentioned earlier, this industry is upcoming and lots of entrepreneurs are interested. Only the buyers with the most potential will stand out. What are some kind of key factors that differentiate an okay buyer from a good buyer? Well, you know, certainly anybody who's had direct experience in the particular business they're buying is beautiful. And in addition to that, if they've got that going on and they're, you know, they have income from it as a second source of income and they go in front of a bank, you know, that's A++, best buyer, can't beat them. Those are the ones that everybody wants, but unfortunately not everybody has that. You know, somebody wants to become an entrepreneur. They're not yet an entrepreneur. It's the chicken and the egg syndrome. And we got to get people in there that, you know, are going to be successful, but they're going to do a lot of learning too. And that's part of being an entrepreneur. You have to learn that process. And so the very best buyer is going to be someone who's got that operational experience somehow in their background. You know, whether it's as an owner or they've worked for somebody else, you know, as an example, if it's an e-commerce company, maybe they've worked for eBay or maybe they've worked for Google or Amazon, and you know they've sort of got some experience in their background that's going to lend itself towards what it is they're doing. That's nice. Or if they've got other income from other sources, like maybe it's another spouse that earns income, or it's another business they own, or maybe they have rental property that's bringing in income. Anything else that, that can sort of lend itself to paying the bills so that not so much weight is being put on the company to pay the debt service. You know, that's what this is all about is, you know, how can the debt service be paid back for the full 10-year amortization period? And so those are great buyers in my mind. Ron, what's another sort of element you can look at for a buyer? Paralysis by analysis. You'll see a lot of them who come in and they're really smart people. And a lot of them like to think they're the smartest people in the room and they're not. And so they'll sit down with every single detail and they'll find reasons why it's not good. And so one of the things that you're looking for as a broker when you're talking to people is, first of all, do they have a job? Why are they leaving the job? You know, how much money do they make? How much money are they looking to make? And you have to kind of tie it all together as to the motivation of why do they want to buy a company? You know, at some point, there's going to be a tell in the conversation you're going to have with a buyer that's going to show you that either this person is going to buy a business or... I don't know. I'm not sure this person will ever buy a business. And there are a lot of guys that they walk down the road, they want to do it, they will never do it. And so, you know, there's definitely kind of an art to what we do. Thanks to Jason and Ron for taking the time to talk to me. 
feel free to send us any questions you have about mergers and acquisitions. We'd be happy to explore the answers. Till next time, this has been Deal Closers. Deal Closers.